In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've heard in our gospel lessons about how to lovingly approach a fellow Christian who is being overcome by sin. We've heard what sort of forgiveness we're expected to offer when we're the ones being sinned against. And tonight, we're continuing along the same theme. The thread that sews all these readings together is how important it is for us to keep our eyes fixed upon the mercy of God toward us, rather than enter into judgment of our fellow man. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we tend to talk a lot about being people who have been hidden with Christ in God. And as we've continued to set out into Christ our ocean, we've said that the compass points for us as a church, the things that help us understand and imagine ourselves rightly in the world, are for us to be apostolic, sacramental, eschatological, and gospel people. Tonight, our text shows us why we must be both eschatological and gospel people. Just prior to this story in Matthew, Jesus has been giving some hard sayings about what is required in following him, specifically for rich people. Peter, ever the loudmouth, blurts out, We've given up everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus assures him that those who have been sacrificed for Christ's sake will be rewarded. But then he ends by saying, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then he tells the parable that's our gospel reading for the day, and he bookends it by repeating, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And that's when our internal lawyers start rioting. The specifics of this parable could be interpreted in a few different ways. The various times that the landlord goes out to call new workers gives images of various epochs. God has gone out and told of his love, calling people in relationship and service to him since the morning of the world. Adam and Eve and Abel, and then in the late morning, the call goes to Moses and Miriam, and at noon it goes to David and the prophets, and then, toward evening, the Gentiles who would make up the church. But it also gives images of those who have been called into Christ's church since birth, and then since childhood, since young adulthood, or old age. More importantly, this parable is driving home some rather large rather close-to-home points about how easy it is for us to get sideways, even when we're doing the work of discipleship. There are three things for us to see here. The goodness of the Master, the surprising nature of Judgment Day, and the problem of spiritual pride. In honor of the parable, we'll start with that last one first. Spiritual pride is a disease that is startlingly easy to catch. Regardless of what you think the Christian message is, whether you are a fundamentalist who thinks it's disembodied souls escaping hell, or you're a mainline liberal who thinks it's all about bringing material and political justice to the marginalized here and now, or anywhere in between, when spiritual pride begins to infect you, the symptoms are generally the same. You'll find yourself frustrated and angry with others, and continually checking and rechecking the accounting books. You've been doing the work right. You've been doing the work longer. You've been doing the work of the master while everyone else has shown up late, done it wrong, or stood around. We'll take one more pass with the razor here, and we may grab a little skin on this one. Many of us have come from other non-tradition traditions, and have encountered the richness of liturgical worship and ordering our lives by the church calendar, and it is oh so easy to move from joy in Christ to judgment of others, to go from satisfaction in Christ to spiritual pride. I mean, I assume. I don't actually know anything about this personally. Over the course of my short life, I've been in a lot of Christian traditions and communities, and I can tell you, spiritual pride is an equal opportunity employer. 
In many ways, spiritual pride is the sin that undid the world. Lucifer longed to glorify himself, and Adam and Eve bought the lie of self-glorification. The sin of our first parents wasn't a choice between spiritual purity and material carnality. The carnal desires of the flesh all too often root themselves most insidiously in our spirituality. This is what John Calvin was getting at when he called the human heart an idol factory. We have an uncanny ability to misshape everything in our attempt to keep ourselves at the center, or to turn God into some sort of investment. This is often revealed in our reaction to suffering. If our children leave the faith, or our marriage falls apart, or our career or finances or health take a hard left turn, so often our reaction is, but God, I've been doing all the right things. I brought my kids to church, I ate healthy, I didn't smoke, I said morning prayer and didn't cheat on my taxes. And this gets especially hard when we start seeing undeserving people just waltzing through life, seemingly getting rewarded every turn. And here's the clincher. It's easy to say it's all about grace until grace is on offer to nasty, awful people you don't like. Then we realize we're the Jonahs of our own lives. We've been met with mercy we don't deserve. Eventually, we enter into God's service, and then BAM! The worst people are suddenly cashing God's welfare checks, and we're left bitter and angry. You've no doubt heard that multitasking isn't real. Cell phone driving laws are tightening up because we're discovering that having your mind on something else is the real danger. Spiritual pride is the habit of keeping track of yourself in relation to everybody else, or at least everybody who's doing worse than you. To resist this temptation, is to be ruthless in keeping our focus where it belongs. Now, typically at this point, there's a platitude about love winning or kindness and non-judgmentalism being the way of the world and God's kingdom. And while there is much to be commended in refraining from judgment and letting love be our guide, I fear that that's not the full of the Christian message. The Christian message is that God has made known his intention to judge the entire world through one man, Jesus Christ, and that he has guaranteed this by raising him from the dead. In just a few weeks, we will be celebrating the Feast of All Souls where we remember our connection with the dead. The theme that pulses through the Feast of All Souls should be present in our daily lives, which is, we are at once all in the same boat. We're undone before our Creator, having no standing in our own righteousness. And there is also an irreducible singularity to our lives lived before God. Meaning, each of us, in the end will stand alone before the judgment seat of Christ, and there will be no side-eyeing, no whataboutism. Judgment Day is going to be, in a word, surprising. The weak and lowly will be lifted up, the hungry will be filled with good things, and the mighty will be sent away empty. The last will be first, and the first last. This is part of what we talk about when we say we're eschatological people. We're living with a surprising end in view. But why? Why will Judgment Day be surprising? Why will the last be first? Is it because the last are somehow special? Is it because having a rough go of it on earth automatically makes you holy? No. It's because of the goodness of the Master. The goodness of the Master is the key to the whole thing. Not just this parable, but the entire universe and your place in it. This brings us back to a place we return a lot here. What is the point of being a Christian? Is it doing the right things and believing the right things so that you can get rewarded with an easy life now or after death? That's karma, not Christianity. That's the sort of thinking our internal attorneys love to keep whispering, but it's not the way of Jesus. 
The point of being a Christian is to be plunged into the divine life. When we talk about being gospel people here, we don't mean being able to make a mental checklist of all the doctrinal necessities of Christianity. Those are incredibly important, and we hit just about all of them in the creed every week. But what we mean is that more and more we want to fundamentally understand ourselves as people who have been brought out of death and into life by the power of the Spirit. We're not just people who have been given second chances to go out and do better. We're not just people who have had the guilt of our past erased so we can sleep better at night. If you're baptized, you are someone who had been wandering around in death and darkness with zero chance of ever getting out of it on your own. But in baptism, you were plunged into Christ's death and you came out of the water in his life. You were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of life and light. And now it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Your life is now rooted in the very life of God. You have been brought into the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How did that happen? It happened because the Master is so good, he goes out again and again and again, calling people into his vineyard. And not to get too far afield, but these images all matter. They're not accidental. What's the purpose of a vineyard? All throughout Scripture, God's image for his work in and with his people is a vineyard. The prophets refer to Israel as a vineyard all the time. Sometimes it's being trampled down and overrun. Sometimes it's bearing incredible fruit. Jesus tells us that he is the vine and we are the branches. And that doesn't just come out of nowhere. God's people have always understood themselves as a vineyard. And in that passage, Jesus is explicitly telling us that we are sacramentally linked to him. Show me where a vine ends and a branch begins, and I'll show you where you live apart from Jesus. But what's the purpose of a vineyard? Wine. All vineyards are directed toward wine. The vineyard of God's people and his work in the world is directed toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is ultimately what we're being called to. He called. That's how you're here. So stop side-eyeing the other workers. Stop wondering about so-and-so and just do the work he's given you to do, knowing that you have already been given the only reward there is. Christ himself. Amen.